you would break our hearts with what breaks yours. That we would somehow be able to be moved by the things that move you. Lord, that we would not remain idle in times or places of injustice. That our lips would not remain mute or silent in opportunity verbally give witness of your name and of righteousness. So God, we we worship you in these songs and we stand, we sing, but we recognize, or I recognize at least, how comfortable I can so easily remain apart from being moved by these things that move you. So God, do it. Whatever it needs to be done in my life and all of our lives to move us out of these places of comfort and ease and be in the gap for you in our families and our schools in the workplace wherever it is you call us to be God and just open us now to your word to whatever you would have to say not through my voice but through the voice of your spirit in Jesus If you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, the Bible, I'd like to have you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're about finished with our series. We'll be starting Advent in a couple of weeks. And it's always a choice time of the ministry of the Word of God uh, as we approach our holiday season. And so be in prayer for that, would you? Just that God would be powerful in these times um, kind of annually that we can represent the compelling message of Jesus Christ. And so... Thank you for being here. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your prayerfulness um, on behalf of the gospel. And um, someone said, and I thought it was pretty compelling, that we live in a culture where we worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. was pretty good kind of describe our experience the apostle Peter after spending a great bit of time in his letter to these believers begins to warm to his point he understands that because of where they are and who they are and what they have signed up for in their allegiance to Jesus Christ, that they are in a difficult place. In other words, their faith in Jesus Christ has cost them dearly. They are not concerned with um, matters related to convenience or comfort um, or reputation or social position. They're not thinking about where they're going to spend their holiday vacations such things that are of such enormous important importance, it seems, in our culture. No, they're, they're trying to survive. <laughs> they're wondering what life's going to look like without their property. Or how they're going to care for their children um, in the dead of winter when they don't have the cover of heat because they've been removed from their homes. 
They have actually, because of their faith, because of their alliance with the cross and with the person of Jesus Christ, they have been separated from those things. And Paul's writing to them. Or Peter is writing to them and he's, he's trying to encourage them and he's trying to equip them and he's trying to urge them to stand firm in the midst of all of that. That's a tall order. Here, almost strangely, he turns, he turns their attention away from the flames, away from the fight, away from all of this and he, he wants to talk to them about worship. He wants to talk to them about their heart and where they really are and what they're investing in and and who they are as a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's challenging them to go deep because it's only going to get worse. And what makes the difference? What causes me to somehow be be liberated from this paralyzing and kind of self-serving addiction to me, to comfort, to ease, to all of those things, to to launch me into a genuinely um, expressive experience of worship of God and Christ? Well, you're probably not going to like the answer to that question. (laughs) Because it's suffering. But it's a particular kind of suffering that Peter develops here. Um, I got a letter recently from one of our missionary partners, Cambodia, Phil Campola, marvelous servant of the Lord. He'll be here in a few months to serve among us and give a witness of his work. But, you know, Cambodia, can you imagine? Many of us in evangelical Christianity, in America anyway, don't realize that suffering is the norm. It's not the exception in most other places in the world. And Cambodia is no exception. Um, Missionaries first entered the uh, Cambodian field in Cambodia in the early 1920s. A time when America was coming unglued. Um, socially and economically. I mean, these were the roaring 20s, and um, nothing was roaring in Cambodia at that time when a few evangelical missionaries armed with the passion for the gospel made their way to this broken land of Cambodia. And 45 years later, only 45 years later, they were expelled. And by that time, the fruits of their ministry, the fruits of their proclamation and their kind of teaching of the gospel kind of brought along about 600 believers in the entire country of Cambodia. 600. 1965. But at that time, in 1965, and for the next decade until about the end of 1975, a civil war uh, emerged and ravaged Cambodia. But it was during that time, during that time of and great peril for these Christians that the church grew from about 100 believers to, are you ready for this, over 100,000 Christians during a time of civil war. Clear indication of the power of the gospel, especially in times of hardship. Um... An amazing work of God. 
But then the Khmer Rouge comes along and takes control and unleashes this kind of maniacal fury on that land. And most of the believers of that time in Jesus Christ were either martyred or forced to flee from the country. That's Cambodia. <laughs> so when Peter asks this question in this section of 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, it takes on some compelling tones. He says in verse 13 to these believers who are not unlike those Cambodian Christians of that time, he says, now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, the answer is really, actually, there are quite a few people who would, do, would love nothing more than to harm you because of your doing good. But then he says, but even if you suffer for what is doing right, God will reward you for it. God will reward you for suffering for righteousness. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, here's, here's this notion of worship. You must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you then about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is God, what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Now, this is an interesting kind of insertion into these believers' experience as Peter says, listen, I understand what you're going through. I know you're under fire. You're under duress. You're feeling the press of persecution, the, uh, the, the pain and the burden of being marginalized because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying to them, listen, here's what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on your, your life as an offering of worship to God. And as a result, because of this persecution, when you are asked, and by the way, you will be asked, you can actually explain to them the hope that is in you because of Jesus Christ. Now, as I listened to that, as I kind of read that again, I kind of thought, well, how does that work? I mean, most Christians today in this culture are pretty good at when we're asked <laughs> to explain what we believe. I mean, we can do that in pretty short order and in fairly convincing terms. You want to go to doctrine, you want to go to why it is we believe what, you know, this is what we believe, this is who we are. We believe in the Bible and we believe in grace and we don't believe in this, and we believe in that. And Christians in our culture, we can, we can wax eloquent and be pretty effective on explaining what we believe. But this does not seem to be the concern of Peter in these moments of great crisis for these Christians. What difference does it make, for instance, when you're pressed, when you're against the flames... When someone has laid hold of you and brought you in chains be before a judge, before counsel, what difference does it make? How is it going to impact somebody else's life if you're somehow able to tell them what you believe? That's not what Peter says. Peter does not say to these believers in these moments, 
when, when the heat is on, when the flames of persecution are outside your door, be ready to give a defense for what you believe. That's not what he said. Peter says, listen, I want you to be ready to give a defense for why you believe in the midst of all this peril. That's the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. Now that has the potential of transforming someone who's looking in from the outside. You tell me what you believe in a moment when you're about to give up your very life for, what, for the cause of Christ. Tell me why. Explain, describe for them the hope that is in you, in Christ Jesus. Now again, so much of this sounds foreign to us because this is not our experience. We have very little opportunity in our culture, in our experience as Christians, at least in this country, to stand against the fray. But I have this sense and I have this growing and mounting feeling that those opportunities are going to increase. And there may come a day when to stand for Christ in the United States of America, in America could cost you your freedom, could cost you your home and your possessions, your reputation. It might cost you your job or your career. It might cost you your physical well-being. What does it mean to be ready to make a case for your hope? What does this readiness consist of? How are we to kind of get ready and stay ready? Um, one of the places I'd like us to go, in addition to 1 Peter, is to Luke chapter 21. So kind of hold your finger in 1 Peter and go over to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 21. This is, these are the words of Jesus as he's in similar fashion trying to prepare his disciples for what's ahead for them. Luke chapter 21. Um, verse 5, Luke 21. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. <laughs> I like that. They were enamored by the temple. They loved the beautiful surroundings of their experience. I mean, is that not kind of epitomize American culture? Well, they love it. I mean, look at this place. Woo. Look at the stained glass. Oh, it's got nice, big, long, dark, shiny pews. Oh, look at, just enamored with the temple. The disciples were kind of going on about, kind of looking at all the stonework and all that things. And see, we become enamored with our surroundings. We can become so comfortable in what makes us feel good about being followers of Jesus Christ, right? Especially in our places of worship. And that's where they were. They were in the temple. But Jesus said, this time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Can you imagine your Christian experience somehow? Just imagine, would it be comfortable to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you and your family, if if, if, if this place just literally crumbled down around us? 
where would you go? If there were no place to bring your family to worship, just stones, just rubble. Teacher, they asked, when, when will all this happen? What, what sign will show us that these things are about to take place? And he replied, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah and saying the time has come. Don't believe them. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Those are all rumblings. Those are all pointers towards what I'm referring to. But don't, don't get too agitated about those things. And then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We're certainly experiencing much of that uh, in our, our world today, there will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands. We understand the, the reality of that. We see that uh, basically by virtue of uh, cable television. It never touches us, but we see it. Uh, there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. But before all this occurs, listen, there will be a time of great persecution. This is for the church. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. <laughs> How's that for an invitation to become a Christian? Become a Christian and someday you're going to be dragged before judges and rulers and kings. You see? This is what this is the vision. But, he says, Jesus says, verse 13, this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. How many opportunities did you have, did I have, in this last very comfortable, cozy, frenetic American week of ours to tell someone about Jesus Christ? Let that sink in. How many opportunities arose? How many people were able, were so raptured by your resolve in the midst of whatever to just ask you the question? How is it that you are able to stay so calm? That your family seems so peaceful and joyful? Well, I wonder if what was to befall these believers to whom Peter wrote may soon befall us. Or if that's what it's going to take to deliver us from an addiction to comfort. To a place where we are able and willing and compellingly motivated to give a defense for the hope that is in us in Christ Jesus. This is the question. Now, Peter does make a relationship between the press and the, the duress of persecution and the hope-filled defense of our faith. And this is what he says back in 1 Peter um, chapter 3. 
Instead, verse 15, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. Peter says the antidote to such things, the, the way to ready yourself for those opportunities is to focus on your own life of worship before Christ, before the Lord. Not necessarily what you believe, but why you believe it. And then you can be ready to explain it, but to do this in a gentle and respective way. Um, Isaiah said the same thing to God's people. I think Peter probably drew this um, from the words of Isaiah when he spoke to God's people and he said, the Lord spoke this to me, this is from Isaiah chapter 8, with his strong hand upon me and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and don't be afraid of what they fear, nor be in dread, but rather reverence the Lord of hosts. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now the number one reason that people give over and over and over and over again, we hear it all the time as to why they just aren't prepared and ready and able to give a defense for their faith or share their faith in Jesus Christ. You know what the number one reason is? Fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid it, you know, it might hurt their feelings. I might step on their toes. I'm afraid it might put me in a bad place. I don't want to offend. I'm afraid. I, I'm afraid I'm not going to know what to say. I'm going to get a little too far down the road. I'm going to get way over my head. Fear keeps us from giving a defense for what we believe and why we believe it. But I think there's something else. Not only is there a lack of confidence and courage, but according to 1 Peter, according to Peter in this passage, there's also a lack of genuine hope. A hope. <laughs> Are you hopeful about the future? Are you hopeful about tomorrow? Are you hopeful about your situation? See, that's what raptures people away from the comfort of their experience. That's what makes a difference. The hope that is in you. Here's what Peter's saying. He said, listen, the flames are coming. They're only going to get hotter. They're only going to intensify. And I think, by the way, that that's a message for the church today. That's a message for me. That's a message for you. That's a message for your families. That's a message for this ministry. This is coming. Jesus said, they will hate you. No, correction. They do hate you. They hate you because of me. You live your life in allegiance with me. You follow after me and they will revile you. They will persecute you. They will not promote you. They will promote someone else above you. You will get a lower salary. You will, you, you will lose friends. You will lose relationships. You, you, your, your, your reputation is threatened. If you really follow after me, from the world's standards, you will lose. You will lose. It will cost you. And in this context, Peter says, it's going to cost you your freedom. They will actually put you in chains. They will drag you into prison. They will drag you into jails. They will drag you into uh, to courts. And you will stand before kings and you will stand before judges because of your faith. 
And that's why he says, be ready not to tell them what you believe. It won't matter. Tell them why. Tell them why you believe. Tell them about the hope that you have. And the question is, how do we get to hope? How is that what wells up in me when I'm presented with an opportunity, when people ask me, about who I am and my Christian faith. Well, pardon this paraphrase, <laughs> but I think Peter is saying you need to hope up. You need to hope up. You need to hope up in your faith in Jesus Christ. I think Christians today, at least in America, are some of the most hopeless people on the planet. Why? Because we have everything we need. We're so comfortable. Everything's at our fingertips. We're not really afraid of anything. It doesn't cost me to follow Christ. That's why we play at our worship. Now he gives us a, a clue. He turns a little light on a dark path. It kind of lights our way. How we can find this. Kind of goes into this theological kind of section here, starting in verse 18. Peter said, listen, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. That's the object of hope, your salvation. He puts that out there as the vision. This is the source of your hope. What Christ has done. So first of all, he said, listen, Christ suffered. He suffered for our sins. Isn't that suffering for good? It certainly is. For all time, he never sinned. But he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death. But he was raised to life in the spirit. And then, listen to this, this is bizarre. Don't, don't let anybody try and explain it because if they try, they cannot. And I'm not going to try either, but it's, it's, it's powerfully mysterious. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. What prison? I don't know, but it's, it's some prison that is like in the depths of the earth, in darkness. S spiritual prison. This was after he died, before he raised to life again on this planet Jesus went with this message of grace and love and he preached to prisoners in darkness. I'm not making this up. It's in the book. <laughs> I don't understand it, but it's in here. And these are the ones. They are the ones who disobeyed God long ago. They've been here since Noah. These spirits, these, these disobedient spirits. When God patiently uh, waited while Noah was building his boat. I love that. I think God was like, it's kind of taking you a while, isn't it, Noah? But he was patient. It was a big boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. Only eight. 
And that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. How does it feel? Listen, how does it feel to wake up in the morning having spent time with the Lord in prayer and having confessed your sin and received his mercy and grace? Let me ask you, believer, how does it feel to have a clean conscience? Well, that feels good. Now I got some hope that's starting to build up in me. How does it feel to know that you don't have to pay a penalty for your sin because it's already been paid by Jesus Christ once for all? How does that feel? How does that feel, believer, to know that you don't have to bear the burden of your salvation? Not today, not tomorrow, not the next day, not in eternity. You don't have to bear that burden because Jesus Christ died for you once for all. He finished the work. Now, how does that make you feel? Now, that's starting to connect to my soul. That's my salvation. Now, this hope is starting to build up within me, you see. I've got a clear conscience I'm not perfect, but authentic before God that my sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. I think I want to sing. For eternity. How does it make you feel, believer, to know that your salvation is eternally secure in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. You could not be condemned and convicted for your sin if you tried. It cannot happen because you are in Christ. You have been set free by the blood and grace of Jesus Christ. Now how does that make you feel? Are you getting hoped up? That's the idea. Because, listen, you need to know this. Just like Peter was saying to these believers, I know this is coming. I know you're in the flames. I know you've been alienated because of your faith. You need to know it's only going to intensify. It's going to cost you everything, in fact. It's probably going to cost you your homes. It's going to possibly cost you your children, your kind of sense of security, your comfort. All of those things that you have valued for so long. But you need to know, you need to get hoped up. Because when they bring you before kings and when you are brought before tribunals, unjustly by the way, you need to be ready to give a defense. Not for what you believe, but for why you believe it. That's hope. The hope of Jesus Christ that is in you. The hope that saved your marriage. You need to be able to give a defense for the fact that when you were at the bottom, when you were at the very bottom in your relationship with your mate, when the bottom had dropped out of everything, Jesus Christ came in and saved that thing and put you on a path to one of the most amazing relationships you could ever possibly imagine. That's hope. That's hope. That's what's going to make a difference. It's not going to matter to them that you can kind of give the five points of Calvinism or that you can somehow deliver unto them the, the, the five tenets of the, of the Baptist faith. It won't matter. That won't matter when the flames are getting hotter and hotter and you have lost everything because of your allegiance to Christ. What's going to matter is the hope that you have that there's life beyond the grave. That's what's going to connect. <laughs> and by the way, 
That's what people need. You know what your friends need in school? They need a living hope that is in you because of Jesus Christ. That's what they need. Someone who's broken because of, a, of, of an addiction. Or maybe they're so confused because of their, their confusion over their sexual identity and all of these other things. Man, they don't need a sermon. They don't need a book on tape. They, they certainly don't need another counseling session. You know what they need? They need the hope of Jesus Christ that is in you. That's what they need. That's what they need. That he's the one who can really deliver them, help them, encourage them. Not marginalize them, but bring them into the family of God. Frank Drown, love that man, one of our missionary partners, and he served Christ for years in, in Ecuador. He tells this great story about the time he was just sharing the gospel to the Quechua Indians, and um, by the way, they didn't speak this language when, the, when they went down there, but they had to, they had to learn Quechua. It's a native language in South America and Ecuador. It's a tribal language. First of all, they had to learn the language. Okay? And because there was no written expression of it, the next thing they had to do after learning the language is they had to create a written language that matched the verbal language, Quechua. Tracking with me? That's the second thing they had to do. Create an alphabet. Create words. The third thing they had to do <laughs> was teach the Kichu Indians how to read the new language. All the while translating the New Testament from its original language through English, because that was their orientation, into Kichua. So that in this moment, Frank Drown could preach in Quechua while they followed along in their Quechua New Testament. Got that? This doesn't happen in a semester. <laughs> 30 years. So he's talking to this group of Elders in this, this village, not Christian elders, just elders of this village, leaders, and their people. And they'd never heard really about any of these things, but they, they were starting to, to make their way into the, the narratives of, of, of Christianity. And there, there they were, Frank was telling me. And, and, and Frank says he gets to the, the story of Jesus, and it comes to this climax. And the, he was telling me about how the chief of this village listening to how Christ was cruelly crucified and, and, and died this kind of substitutionary death, Frank said, so out of character for this man, he just, he stands up 
off of where he was sitting. He could restrain himself no longer. And he jumps to his feet and he cried, Stop! Stop, Papa Frank! That's what he called him in Quechua. Papa Frank. Stop, Papa Frank. Take him down from the cross. I belong there, not him. And he was wondrously transformed. And never the same. He was hoped up. Give a defense. As I, as you, meditate on and consider the scene of the Son of God hanging on the cross in agony with blood flowing from his wounds, can we say from our hearts anew, afresh, I belong there, not him. Take him down, put me there. But then go one step further and say, I'm not there because he was. He died, he finished it, he paid the price, and as a result, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me, and I'm hoped up, and they can drag me before any tribunal, just or unjust, because of my allegiance to Jesus Christ, and bring their worst, and I will be ready by the grace of God to give a defense for the hope that is in me in Christ Jesus. That's the vision. That's the vision. No matter what. We do that by committing our lives to meditating on the powerful principles and promises of the word of God. Let them fill your mind and heart. Let them challenge and refresh and rapture you anew. This wondrous gift of salvation in prayer as we come before the Lord sacrificially and wrestling before him in prayer. And as a result, God does a work in me. I'm hoped up, you see. It transforms me. It readies me for those moments when someone asks, Hey, man. Man. There's something different. What is it? Oh, well, this thing about substitutionary atonement, you know, and um, predestinationism and blah, 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 blah. What? No, oh, you need to know how Jesus Christ changed my life. I don't understand it all, but he did. It's powerful because it's real. He meets me. You need to know he meets me. He's given me a promise of his peace and his presence, no matter what. He saved my marriage. He saved my family. It's on and on. The witness goes because I'm hoped up. See, that's what's going to connect. That's what's going to make a difference. Man, I'll tell you what. If we stay in this kind of debilitating addiction to comfort too much longer, we're going to hit a tipping point, I believe. In the church. And when the flames do come, when the press is on, we're going to have, having lost all credibility, it won't matter what we say. So maybe our prayer is bring on the fire. Bring on the fire. If that's what's going to take, for me 
stop worshiping my work. Working at my play. And playing at my worship. Because there's so much at stake. May it be so. For the praise and glory of his name. My urging for all of you, church, is to hope up and be ready.